First Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewel, gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, Lord, and I just pray as we hear it this morning that uh, your Holy Spirit would engage our minds and our hearts, Lord, that uh, you would make this a, a time of reflection, 
Lord, a time of encouragement, a time of uh, whatever is needed in our lives, Lord, as we apply this word in our daily walk with you this week. I just ask for your anointing on it, and I just thank you in Christ's name. been working our way through uh, 1 Peter. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what I call the code of conduct. Uh, One of the things we need to understand, 1 Peter, 1 Peter is given to us with this goal in mind. The goal is that we would understand we have the grace we need in times of trouble, in times of need. Anybody ever experienced days that were not like Super killer, right? So Peter is saying, look, there are difficult times ahead, difficult struggles we're going to have to go through, and you have the grace you need in Christ to overcome those challenges. And then he gives a code of conduct. Now, this code of conduct we have seen a number of times. Paul's going to give one twice, maybe three times. Peter gives one once. They're very similar But the idea of the code of conduct is it is a holiness code. A holiness code is how refugees should behave in exile. Because if you have your citizenship in heaven, then this place is not your home. So as we look at the holiness code that he described for us, and we went through it last time, <clears throat> we look at that holiness code, we want to understand that the reason this is given is because we are in enemy territory, and there is rules of engagement. He's going to talk over and over again about these rules of engagement. If you suffer, suffer for doing good, not for doing Evil, right? So we want, to, we want to recognize the rules of engagement. What do the rules of engagement mean? You are in hostile land. Jesus said, that is how this world is. Until the king returns, we find ourselves in hostile territory. Now, in different periods of time, it may be more or less hostile, but it is nonetheless still hostile. What is the other thing we want to realize? The true king is coming. There is a king coming. His name is Jesus Christ, who will establish his kingdom on earth. The third thing we want to know is we have orders. We have orders. What are we supposed to do? Uh, as a pastor, I get asked this question a lot. What is, what is God's will for my life? And I always start with the really easy ones. So we don't have to sit in a circle and sing kumbaya and hope that the Spirit drops upon us to tell us God's will for our life. You want to know God's will for your life? Here. Be subject to the governing authorities. When government commands... What God forbids or forbids what God commands, however, government must be resisted. Otherwise, what's God's will? Be subject to the governing authorities. What's God's will? Husbands, love your 
wives. That's right. Husbands, love your wives. And in fact, die for them. He goes so far as to say, treat them like China. So not China the nation, China the plates. <laughs> treat them like China, not Tupperware. You guys remember, we talked about this. Treat them like China. Do not hinder your prayers. Right? Says, wives, what is God's will? That you would submit yourself to your husband. That you would be aware that your adornment is not to be focused on the exterior. That's exactly where our world's adornment is. But on the internal spirit. We, as there's nothing wrong. What is it? What's the, what's the old timer used to say if the barn needs painted, paint it? What's that? McGee? McGee used to say that. He'd get away with it because he had a southern accent, so it sounded okay. There's nothing wrong with giving attention, but the Bible calls us to modesty. Yes? Ladies, what's God's will? God's will is we walk in modesty, be submitted to our husbands, and that through our devotion to Christ, we might bring unbelieving husbands to faith, right? Isn't that what Peter talked about? Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Masters, be kind to your slaves. So the problem is most of the time is not with what is the will of God. Most of the time the problem is I don't want to do it. He says to everyone, now not specific roles, not like the family holiness code. He's going to now say to everyone, he gives instruction. 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. If Christ left us an example, what does that mean? We're to follow the example, right? Follow the example of Christ. In fact, he says in the next part of verse 21, so that you might follow in his steps. Just in case we're curious or we're confused on whether or not we want to know what God's will is for us, here you go again. He who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. It's like saying when he was hated, when he was verbally assaulted, when the keyboard warriors broke out and threw all that slander, how do you say it? Where's Hannah? I don't know. She can't help me. She ran away. Oh, I know you're gone, Hannah. <laughs> <coughs> when he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's usually where I go, first thing. Oh, you're threatening me? Guess what? It just leaps right to my lips, right? I, I, I have to bite a tongue or it'll jump straight out of my mouth. But here's how Jesus did it. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. So God says in our suffering, in our struggles, in the tribulation and persecution that we face in this world, put your eyes on the prize and keep moving forward. Everyone, he says, 1 Peter 3, 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. One mind, right? Paul says the same thing. Have unity of sympathy. That means think one thing, feel one thing. 
The Bible says it like this. If there are mourners present, mourn with him who mourns. Right? Rejoice with him who rejoices. That's right. We want to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Rather bless. For to this you were called, listen to what he says, that you may obtain a blessing. To this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Listen, refugees, followers of God in a foreign land has happened before. In Jeremiah 29, I know you guys like to put this on your fridge. We're going to read it in context today. Jeremiah 29, verse 3 is where we're going to start. And I want you to see, when we're asking ourselves, what am I supposed to do? How do I live in this world, in this world today that is hostile toward my holiness? So in a world that is hostile toward holiness, what do I do? How am I to respond? You're to respond the same way God's chosen refugees in exile to build the next generation of the nation of Israel, we look at what, what did God tell them? The, Bible's, the Bible, the story doesn't change, folks. It's still tracking the same ideals. Jeremiah 29, verse 3. This letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's what it said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the angel armies, Yahweh's letter, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, what's it say? Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God sent them. They are in exile. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. God's, the number of God's people was to constantly be increasing. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. New King James says, pray for its peace, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they prophesy to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed 
for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to the land. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29 is laying out for us how refugees are to behave when they're in an exilic land. In other words, when they're in a land that's not ruled by their king. God said there was a promise to his people. What He would gather them and there would yet be a day, right? When they were with him, they sought him, they prayed to him. His presence was there with them and in their midst. <clears throat> so this is the challenge that God lays out for us. How to walk in holiness in a hostile land. He goes on in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Here's what he says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? As a refugee, an exile, stranger in a strange land, citizens of heaven, who have made the decision to follow Christ, follow his example, walk in the holiness that he calls us to, people who have made that decision... Don't worry about what someone's going to do for, to you for doing good. Now, when he says doing good, who's, who's the decider of what is good? God is the decider of what is good, not the nation. Have you noticed our nation's confused? The world, is the world confused about good and evil? Right and wrong? Up and down? Yeah, for sure. Is there a lot of confusion? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion. Where do we, where's our source of righteousness? I want to do what's good. Then I walk in obedience to God's word. So Peter says, now who is there that will harm you if you are zealous to do what is good? Well, it's a rhetorical question that typically demands a no answer, except we know that no, no one should except for a world that's hostile to holiness, right? So listen to what he says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Nowhere on the pages of Scripture did the Lord say, come follow me and all your problems will go away. You will have strength for all your problems. You will have light in the dark places. You will have endurance to overcome. You will have the strength from the Lord to do the things that God is calling you to do. All of those things he's promised us. He has not promised us that we will not have trouble, trials, persecution. Anybody ever endured a trial? Anybody ever had to walk through trouble? So our experience tells us it's absolutely true, right? 
our experience tells us it's true, that there are times we may be called to suffer for righteousness' sake. That because you chose to stand with Christ, there will be a price, right? And you're going to face that decision multiple times in your life. You're going to face a decision that says, if I choose to stand for Christ, it's going to cost me something, and you're going to say, I don't want to pay it. I don't want to pay it. I'm thankful that God is long-suffering toward us and patient, that he extends grace to us so that we might have grace in time of need. Oh, Lord, thank you. But yet he still calls us to better. He calls us to higher. He calls us to follow his example. Listen to what he says. You will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness sake. Have no fear of them. You're always going to hear this phrase. Don't be afraid of them. Don't fear the world. Fear God. Don't fear the world. When I was a young man and I was making choices about whether or not I was going to rebel against the leadership in my home, against my father and my mother, when I was facing those choices about what I was going to do, what am I going to do? Am I going to go with him or not go with him? I oftentimes feared the, the, the teasing or the grief I would get from my friends more than I feared my parents. Now, when I walked out and made those choices and did those things, it did not help me. And when I come to Scripture and I look at Scripture, listen, does Scripture give us a promise if I'm obedient to my parents? Yeah. It's the a, it's a first commandment with a promise that your days will be long. But I chose to fear the wrong thing. I chose to be afraid of my friends or be afraid of the group I was in or be afraid of whoever I might disappoint. But I, I never, ever thought about being afraid of my dad because the world teaches us not to respect our parents. So I never thought about it. You're supposed to disrespect dad. It was every cartoon I ever watched, every song I ever sang, everything I ever looked at said, what's, what's the big deal about dad? Oh, dad, dad, you know, dad, dad's dad. That's just how it is, but he don't know anything. How many fathers heard, realized that their kids were pretty sure you didn't know anything the whole time they were growing up? And maybe if you're blessed, your children today will rise up and say, oh, dad did know what he was talking about. This is what the Bible's talking about when it calls us to fear the Lord. Listen to what it says. Remember, we read it in 1 Peter 3, 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Which do you want to be? The Lord God Almighty is worthy of your respect 
worthy of your praise, worthy of your honor, and whoever you are respecting above him is not. We want to walk in obedience to God. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He goes on, verse 15. This is exactly what we're talking about. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Most people, when they talk about apologia, when they talk about making a defense for the faith, they skip this verse. I don't know why. They go right to always be prepared to give a defense. Well, wait a minute. Back up. What did it say first? In light of this hostility to holiness and the struggle within ourselves that wants to please the people around us rather than God. In light of that, before you give a defense, before you give an answer, you need to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set Christ at, you know, he's quoting from Isaiah. This is a straight quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, 13. Here's that phrase again. The Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth. But the Lord of hosts. Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now, the reason why people struggle over this phrase, why am I supposed to be afraid of God? I don't know. Why are you afraid of your friends? Why are you afraid of the people you hang out with? Why are you afraid of the ones who are enticing you to go in this direction for sin or that direction for sin? Because if you're not afraid of them, you would have no problem telling them, no, that's lame. I'm not doing that. But you're afraid of them. But the God of all the universe who created everything, who is exalted above all things, he says, honor me as holy. That phrase holy means to be set apart, transcendent. There's no one like him. No other God before him. Set Christ the Lord. It's giving Jesus Christ the same title. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, set Christ the Lord as holy. Meaning that my motivation is this. I don't want to disappoint my Savior. Rather than, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to make my friend feel uncomfortable. Well, first, if he or she is your friend, you won't have to worry about it. And if he or she is not your friend, then they shouldn't be the one guiding your decisions. It should be your eyes upon the prize, looking at Jesus. So before we can do anything, we need to make Christ Lord, sanctify the Lord God in our heart. Here's what we, this is something that has developed <coughs> in our world some would say it began in the 1930s. I don't know when it started. But somewhere along the way, we all bought into what is called the myth of neutrality. You and I think that somewhere there is ground that's not holy. 
Like, you know, you, you, you go to church, that's cool, and keep that religious thing behind doors in your house, you know, whatever, in your prayer closet. Don't let that thing out. Everywhere else is secular. That's the sacred. But that's not in Scripture. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything is his. There's no neutral ground. Where do you think there's neutral ground? You're in hostile territory. There's no neutral ground. None. Work is not neutral. Jesus said, you are either for me or you either help me gather or scatter. Did he say, oh, there's also neutral where you're not doing anything? No, he didn't say that, right? He said, you're either with me or you're not with me. You're either with me or you're not with me. There is no neutral ground. School's not neutral. Work's not neutral. Riding in the car with your friends is not neutral. Honor Christ as Lord. If he is Lord, he is Lord of all. If he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Lord means he's it. He's the motivation, right? The words I speak, I want to honor you, God. The things I do, I want to honor you, God. This is my focal point. Nothing else. Everything else is secondary to that. He is primary. Scripture would challenge us in bringing <clears throat> and, and uh, elevating Christ as Lord, setting him apart as holy, that we are to bring how many thoughts captive? Oh, crazy. All thoughts captive. Is English a thought? Is math a thought? Is government a thought? Is our, are our relationships thoughts? Is there something that's not a thought? Bring all thoughts captive to obedience in Christ. When he says, set apart the, the Christ as Lord, we're to, we're to make him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How many opinions? Are there opinions out there that are in opposition to God? We destroy how many arguments? We destroy every argument, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought. First, he says, sanctify the Lord in your heart. Then you're ready to give an answer. And oftentimes I have to consider, have I, have I set apart Christ as Lord in my life? You see, is there something I'm withholding from him? Is there some realm in which I say, Lord, you're, you're not Lord here. You need to stay apart from this 
You see, Peter knows, he understands that those who have God's promise of blessing understand that there will be pain in this life, but it will be short-lived. It's not eternal. There's no eternal pain here. So instead of fearing the unbelievers, what they might do, focus on Christ as your Lord and respond to them in light of your hope in Christ not in your fear of man. He then moves on in verse uh, 15 to say, and be always be prepared to make a apologia, defense. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for what? A reason for the hope. The, the concept is this, that in our dwelling as refugees, foreigners to a foreign land, waiting our king, right, to set up his kingdom in light of the fact that you will be looked down upon or that you may endure some, some measure of persecution, trial, or tribulation. In light of all of those things, people are going to ask you for a reason why you have hope. So always be ready to give them an answer. If there was never any pain in this life, no one would ask you why you hope. If we never fell out of trucks, if we never got bad news from a doctor, if we never had to endure any type of suffering, no one's going to ask you where your hope is at because they don't have to watch you endure but when they watch you endure, they will ask you a reason for the hope that is within you. Why do you smile? What, what, what enables you to keep going? Why haven't you gave up? Why didn't you quit? We want to be ready, always ready to give that answer, a response to the hope that we have in Christ in the midst of our suffering. And when we do it, how are we to answer? With gentleness and respect. Because sometimes when they ask you, that they might be the one causing your pain. So when you give your answer, give it with gentleness, meekness, power under control. Submitted to Christ, saying the words Christ wants you to say. Doing the things he wants you to do. Not the things you want to do. I have, I have not often found my desire to line up with his. Most of the time, especially if it's quick, like, you know, the guy who almost kills you on the road. Well, I don't know if anybody experiences that quite like a guy who rides a motorcycle. See, in a car, you get a fender bender. On a motorcycle, you die. That seems bad. And occasionally, there will be something large, let's say a giant beat truck, who's in a hurry to get wherever he needs to get, and you're a little motorcycle, and he never sees you. You're not going to win that fight. Now... I want my response in those situations to honor Christ. 
That's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road for me. I, I recognize that sometimes my flesh will rise up and not my spirit. I want my spirit to be in control, not my flesh. So we want to walk in the spirit. We want to have this walk of our spirit as a focus of our hope that we might answer those who ask us why. So that you may have a good conscience. That means so that you will have acted in the situation in a proper way so that no matter what anybody says about you, on the day of judgment, God will be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. He says, so that we might answer with a good conscience. Look what he says. So that when you are slandered, he doesn't say if, you notice that, right? He didn't say, well, just in case they have a bad attitude to your answer. No, you're in hostile property. When, when the hostile reach out to the holy, it's not always the, it's not always the, what's them shows you like to watch, babe? Hallmark Channel. That's not always a Hallmark Channel. And the Hallmark Channel, everything, at all happy. You guys know life is not the Hallmark Channel, right? So, which is, this is why Kathy likes to watch a Hallmark channel, because life is not like that. That's, right. I, that's okay. You can watch it. Just so you don't think that when hostility reaches out to holiness, that it's going to be like that, and, and everything changes, and everybody's happy, and the, the angels sing, and, and uh, you know, I'm not saying that'll never happen. But he says in Scripture, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So though they say bad things about you, though they talk about you when you leave the room, though they say, I don't know why that guy's always talking about Jesus, they do all those things, there will come on the day of judgment you hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and them being ashamed. Which would you rather have? Because if you're going to live your life here in fear of man, it's the opposite. We want to honor Christ the Lord as holy. For it is better, he says, to suffer for doing good. If that be God's will, than doing evil. It's better that you suffer for being obedient to God. This is what he's talking about. It's better to suffer for being obedient to God than to suffer for being evil. So don't no, you don't get to go rob a bank. No, you don't get to go, you don't get to go do wicked and evil things. But sometimes just because you don't do wicked and evil things does not mean you won't suffer. There are pastors today in prison simply because they teach the word. There's a guy in China serving serving 10 years. 10 years because he taught that Jesus is Lord, not China. So you may do what is good and still have to pay. But it's better to do that than to suffer for doing evil. And so we see the example of Christ. We look at the example of Christ. We're going to focus on him in verse 18. Those who suffer like him will be glorified like him. This is the point. So we're following Jesus. Where is Jesus going? When Jesus called his disciples, come follow me, he is going to the cross. 
So he's calling them to go to the cross. That's the place where we die. Paul would declare, what am I worried about all this stuff? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, I died with Jesus. He can have this life. And so this is the challenge of Paul, the example of Christ. He has three main points. First, Christ suffered for the unrighteous to, br to bring believers to God. Second, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from the dead, and he proclaimed victory over the demonic spirits. And third, he is now exalted on high, and he is the resurrected and ascended Lord that has subjected all powers unto himself. This is the example we are to learn from and to follow. For Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered for the unrighteous to bring believers to God. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Jesus died on the cross, was raised again on the third day. He rose again. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now at this point, People go crazy. So I'm going to take you on a saner journey. Is that okay? Now some people will say I'm crazy. That's what coffee on Monday morning is for. The scripture declares that when Jesus was resurrected, when he's raised, he went and proclaimed. He heralded. He preached to the spirits in prison. He went and preached to demons in chains. Jackie, how could you possibly know this? Well, I'm glad you asked. So, in the beginning, the fall of Satan occurs. So, so sometime shortly after the fall of Satan, the fall of man occurs. The Lord gives out what is called the Proto-Evangelicum, that... The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would always be at war with one another. In other words, the seed of the woman, this, a woman who, by the way, has no seed, is a first mention of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So there will come a seed from woman, not man, from woman who will crush the head of the serpent. You will bruise his heel. You need to understand what that means. He's going to stomp on your head so hard he bruises his heel. Your head, however, is getting squashed. You will bruise his heel. He will bruise your head. One is a death blow. The serpent, the devil, understood that there will be a seed a child from a woman who is going to be the one who will put down this rebellion once and for all. Proto-evangelicum. So the devil from that day forward has worked to foil the plan of the birth of Messiah. He tried to wipe out the nation of Israel. He got two brothers to kill each other in the next chapter. Cain and... Ah, so you guys have heard the story before. In Genesis chapter 6... It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. The sons of God, Beni Elohim, 
Bene Elohim, I don't care who tells you what, there is no way to get people out of Bene Elohim. The Bene Elohim are angels. They are angels every time that phrase is used in the Old Testament. Every time Bene Elohim. Now you can say sons of God in the New Testament and mean people. But in the Old Testament, it's not, in the New Testament, it's not Bene Elohim. That's not what it is. Bene Elohim, sons of God. The angels in some way defiled women. Their children, the offspring of angels and women, were something the Bible calls the Nephilim. There were giants in those days, Scripture says. The Lord said everywhere the nation of Israel went, he would challenge them, wipe out the giants, get the giants. In fact, shortly after this event occurred, the Lord looked at the earth and said, Wickedness is everywhere on the earth. Man's desire is only for evil continually. I will not strive with man forever. And he brought a fellow named Noah who began to build a boat. And there was a flood. And the earth was cleansed. And the spirits were imprisoned. The spirits that tried to infiltrate the plan of God by, in, in whatever way, whatever way they did it, doesn't matter, whatever way they did it, they infiltrated into humankind and brought about uh, beings that, that were, were not able to, if they could have infiltrated Noah's family and everyone, there could not have been a Messiah. The angels win. These are fallen, obviously. And so they're foiled. Those guys are put into a prison in Revelation. It's called the Abuso. The Bible tells us that in the end of days, an angel is going to fly to the Abuso and open it up. So that the worst of the angels who have been imprisoned may be released. They are in chains in darkness until that day. Well, let me give you some of the ideas. People come to this section of scripture and they say, okay, well, let's see. This is about Christ preaching during the time of Noah through Noah and those people who heard him preaching. To me, that doesn't make sense. Some people think that this is Peter referring to the people who died in the flood and Jesus goes to those who died in the flood and he preaches to them. They get a second chance, but scripture would not bear that out. Another group, another group thinks that, uh, um, there is a, a group of, of, um, the interval between his death and resurrection. He went to hell. You probably heard this before he went to hell and he took all the name tags of the people that were in hell. That's weird. Or the majority view of most scholars today is that Christ went to the prison and proclaimed his victory. When he died and rose again, 
It's, it's over. The battle's done. And so he went to those spirits who were disobedient and he proclaimed his victory before them. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4 is going to talk about these. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains and gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Jude 6 talks about them. And to the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Both of those sections of scripture refer to the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. Just prior to the flood in Genesis chapter 7. Look what he says about them, 1 Peter 3, 20. Because they did not, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited. When? In the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now he talks about the rescue. Listen, Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring believers to God. Then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's raised from the dead and he goes and he preaches the victory to the angels in prison. It's a heralding. Uh, so I don't remember if this movie's good or bad. So you should never make movie references in church because later on somebody's going to say, I watched that movie. It was the most horrible thing I ever saw in my life. So this is not an affirmation of the movie, but I, there is a herald in this movie. There's a movie called The Knight's Tale. And in The Knight's Tale... There is a character in the Knight's Tale who is the herald. The word here that says he preached to the spirits in prison is the word herald. So like the herald going out and introducing the knight that was about to fight, you know, oh, he's whatever the greatest thing on since sliced bread. Well, in this case, Christ is the herald. And he comes to the spirits in prison and he proclaims, today... You lost forever. There is nothing that can be done because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has paid the price once and for all. So this is accomplished. Next, we see the rescue. What's the rescue? The rescue is that now he is exalted on high. And all things are subject to him. Look what he says. He says, in the days uh, of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight people, were saved safely through the water. What's he telling them? How many people from the whole world were saved after the flood? Eight. Now, how many people were on the world? More than eight. Okay? So he's, Peter is saying to the church, look, you may be few. You are refugees. Believers and followers of God Almighty in hostile territory, and it may feel like you're surrounded by all this wickedness, but God was able to deliver eight. He will also be able to deliver you. The same way that they were carried through, you can be carried through whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever struggle, you will also be carried through. And he's going to give a type. 
He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So in the same way that they were saved through water in the ark, baptism is that sign, that symbol that you belong to the Lord. Because in baptism, listen, he's not talking about the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, is, what happens in baptism? In baptism, I die to the old life, and I'm raised new. A citizen of heaven. A stranger in the land I was born in. I went under the water, and I died, and I rose. And now Christ is going to carry me through. The sign of baptism points out to the beauty of God's saving grace, which is accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. So when we have a baptism here and we lay somebody below the water, symbolically they died. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And then they rise to Christ, a new life. Right? A new life, washed clean, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the main point that he's driving home is that believers have no need to be afraid of the suffering around them. Their suffering will not have the last word. Jesus Christ did when he stood before the spirits in prison and he said, you lost. Now it was never in doubt. Do you know how I know it was never in doubt? Because if it was equal forces, who in the world would have been able to put the spirits in prison? They're not equals. When the, when the demons were, were in legion, you guys remember the story of Jesus? He meets a guy in a graveyard, he's naked, chained. They try to chain him, but he keeps breaking the chains. <clears throat> Jesus says, what's your name? They say, legion, for we are many. Are you, are you tracking with me? So when they say Jesus, they say to him, Son of God, what have we to do with you? It's not our time yet. For what? Crazy. It's not our time. Don't send us to the abuso, they say. I wonder why they said that to Jesus. Well, who do you think put the other angels in the abuso? Jesus shows up and they're like, oh, whoa, wait, okay, 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 okay. Can we go into pigs? Right? Don't send us to the abuso. All it would have taken was a word from him. So our suffering does not have the last word. Jesus Christ has the last word. That's why he's worthy of our praise. That's why he's worthy of our respect. That's why we are to fear the Lord and not the people we're afraid of. All unbelievers will share the same destiny. And all believers will share the same destiny. Christ overcame his suffering, his death, burial, and resurrection. You will overcome your suffering in the same way. For we will be raised together with Christ. The symbolism between Baptism, the believer today in Noah is this. They were a small embattled minority in a hostile world. What did Jesus say about the last days? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. 
You are a small minority in the midst of hostile land, a hostile world. But we can be sure, just like Noah, our future is secure because we are in his hands. We are in the hands of the king. And the basis of our assurance is the appeal made at baptism. What's that appeal? The appeal to a good conscience on the basis of his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection because of the work of Christ. Baptism is just a sign. The work of Christ saves. The work of Christ will accomplish that goal. So in verse 22, who has gone into heaven? The Christ. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Jesus said in the Great Commission, a little authority has been given to me. Is that what he said? Some authority has been given to me. How's it go? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go, therefore, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. All authority. Here Peter is saying Jesus has all authority. So even in our suffering and the struggles that we face, Jesus is reigning and ruling. So put your eyes on the prize. Don't be afraid to walk in holiness. Don't be afraid to set your eyes on him, to honor Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to give an answer for the hope you have in a hostile world because Jesus is your king. Because Peter would write, Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has triumphed. The battle is over. The war is won. There's not a, it's not an iffy thing. Like, oh man, I hope God wins. No, it's done. It was finished when Christ rose. It was finished. Death has been defeated. There is no sting to death. There is no power of death over you. All believers have this promise. So when you look around and you see a hostile world around you and you say, oh my gosh, Look at how the forces of evil are arrayed against us. And they said that, and this says that, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. And we want to engage because when we seek the peace of this land, we get peace too, right? So we stay engaged in the city we're in, but this place is not my home. My king is Christ. He gets my allegiance he gets my honor, he gets my obedience. And then everything else trickles down from there. 
because he won. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have, Lord Jesus, to come before you. We thank you for the truth of your word, what your word declares. We thank you for your victory, God, that has been wrought. We thank you, Lord, that you have come to proclaim the year of Jubilee. That you're declaring that our bondage has been destroyed, that the debts have been paid. That you have done the things that you said you would do. Lord God, as we, as we consider who you are and what you've done, I don't know how we can't elevate you to Lord. How, I don't know how we can't, with all of heaven, proclaim the, the honor and glory and power to the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> that we would recognize the, the beauty of the worship in heaven in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 as as all the angels and the elders, everyone gathers, they throw their crowns at the feet of our great God and King Jesus Christ and they proclaim his value, his worthiness. God, may, may you be the motivation that calls me to walk in holiness, to follow you. To just ask the questions. I want to say what honors Jesus. I want to do what honors Jesus. And if it doesn't do those things, and I don't want to say it, and I don't want to do it. I want to be able to say what Jesus said when he looked at his accusers and he said, I only speak the words the Father gives me to speak. I only do the deeds the Father has given me to do. I want to walk in radical obedience. I want to honor you, my great God and King, Jesus Christ. I want to honor you as Lord in my heart. I don't want to deny a single corner, a single place, a single part. I don't want my freedom to get in the way of bringing glory and honor to you. And as we walk in that obedience, as we lift our eyes to the prize, God, may you give us the strength we need day by day, moment by moment. When we stumble and fall, may we remember that your word declares that a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. When my temper gets the best of me, may I remember that the wrath of man will never accomplish the righteousness of God. May I fight the battles before me just like Christ did with the word of God. God, be glorified and magnified in our lives. Help us live as believers, honest, true believers, being obedient to Christ in a hostile world. And when we do it, help us be ready for an answer for those who ask us, why would you do that? And may we say, 
because I honor Christ as Lord. Lord God, open our hearts, eyes, minds, and will and bring it into obedience in Christ and be glorified in this place in Jesus' name. Amen.